Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition to win at work, drive your career forwards and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. Did you know that 70% of CFOs still make decisions based on gut feeling rather than actual data? Join Hannah Monroe your host of CFO 4.0, for an online presentation where she discusses what you need to truly become a data-driven finance leader. This session will not only talk about the why, but will also identify how you can automate your financial operations and get meaningful data to drive your business forwards. Check out the link in the show notes or visit our events page at www.itassolutions.co.uk. So hello everybody and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. Today we're talking about everything data, privacy and security. So with me on the podcast today, I have Stuart from the Compliance Consultancy. So Stuart's been doing this for a very long time. He's got various different qualifications that are lovely and long to name in security and privacy. Um, He works with businesses from all different sectors, including those governed by the Financial Services Authority, Um, and specialises in e-commerce, the IT sector and education. Now, and I love this. He's given some great facts about him as an individual. So obsessed with golf, handicap of seven, which you're obviously very proud of, Stuart. (laughs) Um, And and you've mentioned that you've had a rescue dog that was on carpool karaoke. How on earth did your rescue dog end up on carpool karaoke? Uh, well, I'm, I'm fortunate to to be friends with somebody in the uh, the public eye who will remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, there was a particular picture that was taken of him uh, in my front room, uh, which also instantly appeared on Graham Norton's uh, show. <laughs> uh, um, but James That's one Ford, famous dog, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, one. Um, uh, where James Corden produced this picture out, uh, out of the. Uh, 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 in the car when he was uh, recording the the, uh, the program. So um, yeah, Herb is Herb is significantly more famous than I am. <laughs> That's a real claim to fame. And um, you've always had a long interest, long-standing interest in privacy, haven't you? Because you had a bit of a um, a detective moment back back in the day. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about how you managed to uh, trap some dodgy email dealers? Yeah, so um, at the time I was working for an ISP, so uh, I, I, it was told that it was quite easy for me to buy my own domain. So I bought my own domain um, and set up what's called a, a catch-all email account. So uh, the whatever appears before the at sign still comes into my inbox regardless. Um, so that basically means that if I was on Tesco's website and they were asking me what my email address was, I'd write Tesco at if I was on uh, Starbucks, I would write Starbucks at, etc. And it basically meant that if, I, if ever I got emails from an organization that wasn't represented by the, the name before the at sign, 
uh, then I knew that that company had either sold or lost my uh, my data. Um, and, and, you know, in truth, the reality was it was mainly to avoid spam um, so that I could just put a rule in Outlook and, and, and make sure all those emails were, were directed to the delete folder. <laughs> And what can I ask? What do you do with the the ones that were doing the dodgy dealing or selling your data on? Did you actually manage to get them to stop or get them to remove you from lists? Um, well, I didn't need to because the um, uh, because the uh, because I was just able to to delete the emails automatically. So so once I created the rule, I never saw the emails again. Um, there have been a few occasions of me getting still getting emails now from organisations. Um, and according to GDPR, I do have the ability or the, the right to uh, to follow those up in court, but it's not something that I've got around to as, as of yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, talking about obviously GDPR, which has been sort of a buzzword, hasn't it, for the last couple of years, um, there's been... so. Tell us about sort of where things are at at the moment in terms of um, data compliance. Are there any sort of recent developments or changes that we need to know about? Uh, certainly, um, the, the I mean the, the, the most notable. Uh, I mean, if, if anyone's happened to have seen the news over the last twenty four hours, they'll have seen that Facebook is threatening to uh, to withdraw itself completely from Europe, which I'm sure nobody believes. But um, but it all comes on the back of what is termed as the the Schrems two judgment, uh, which is a judgment within e, uh, within the EU courts, which basically invalidates the. Uh, what's called the privacy shield, which is the uh, mechanism for transferring data to uh, to the US specifically. Um, the <clears throat> the history of this is that this is this is actually known as the Schrems two case uh, because prior to the privacy shield, there was something called safe harbor, um, and that was invalidated uh, thanks to uh, the same gentleman, uh, Max Schrems, who is an Austrian lawyer uh, and privacy activist, uh, who, who went to court to, to question whether or not the uh, EU data privacy rights were being upheld within the US. Now, the implications to, uh, to, to the latest judgment actually stretch beyond the US, but the principle being is that um, the first case came around because uh, of the Ed Snowden revelations, uh, insofar as the fact that the US government was caught snooping into Facebook and Gmail and such like. Um, uh, and therefore, uh, Privacy Shield was brought in, uh, which in theory had independent over, uh, effective oversight, um, uh, which meant that they had to have effect, what is effectively a, a, a third party to, uh, to oversee uh, to ensure that US companies were applying uh, the relevant data protection rights. Um, however, because of the surveillance laws in the US, um, which, which, which are specifically the Foreign Inter Intelligence Surveillance Act, 702 as it's known, um, the, again, the, 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 the EU court has established that EU uh, data subjects' privacy rights cannot be um, uh, cannot cannot be uh, respected uh, uh, with the current uh, US law, um, and essentially it means that if a company in America was relying on the Privacy Shield, uh, then they are currently uh, processing data illegally because the Privacy Shield has been made invalid. 
So for for those that don't quite understand what the Privacy Shield is, can you just sort of explain that to our to our listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, if you want to transfer data outside of the EU, there are a number of different mechanisms for doing that. The first one is adequacy. Uh, and that's essentially where the EU uh, identifies the privacy law of the third country, uh, as it would be, as being of a standard similar to GDPR. And, and that would uh, provide an adequate level of protection to EU data subjects. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> uh, adequacy is is uh, another conversation um, because it's something that the UK is likely to try or, or want to rely on after Brexit. And we can come back to that later if you want. Um, but uh, essentially what was negotiated with the US, because obviously there's a huge amount of data uh, that, that passes from the EU. So we're talking, as well as the Facebooks and the, and the Googles of this world, it, you know, it includes the, the likes of Sage, um, Microsoft less so, because they are trying to move a lot of their data to the EU, but the likes of Dropbox and such like as well. So massive amounts of, of personal data is transferred across to the US. Uh, and what they wanted to do was to put in place an easy mechanism for US companies and EU companies to be able to use so that that uh, transfer was made legal. So in terms of, so that's the mechanism that's now, from what I'm gathering, is actually now defunct. And there's a new mechanism or a new way of approaching sending data across, you know, across the ocean, as it were, to the US. So, So if people want to be compliant, which I'm assuming a lot of listeners do, how do they need to approach that? It's a, it's a very interesting question uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of discussion uh, within my sector about how people might do that. But essentially, so <clears throat> where the privacy shield can't be used, there are essentially two other options uh, to, to look off, potentially three, I suppose. But the two main ones, one is standard contract clauses uh, and the other is binding corporate rules. And, and both are very similar. Uh, in terms of of how they work. They they are standard contract terms that you put into an agreement with with the the company, uh, the processor in the third country. Um, And uh, essentially, they provide the protection to data subject rights that that we've discussed before. However, the court case also suggested, uh, and it's, it's yet to be confirmed by the EU courts, but certainly has been confirmed by uh, rel- uh, various data protection authorities across the EU, um, that both standard contract clauses and binding corporate rules aren't effective where there are surveillance laws in the third country. And obviously we're talking about the US here, but it does re- does it's exactly the same if you're looking to transfer data to another country that has, shall we say, oppressive uh, surveillance laws, um, which suggests that that they are also invalid on the basis of that. The only other real option would be to use derogations, uh, which talk about getting consent from the user and such like, but they can't be used, uh, they, they must only be used as an occasional nature and a case-by-case basis, and certainly they can't be used where you're looking at bulk. So as it stands at the moment, it's it's very difficult to put a specific case for any data transfer from the EU 
to the US or any other third country where you're relying on either the Privacy Shield standard contract clauses or BCRs, um, binding corporate rules. So <clears throat> um, there has been some advice put out by some uh, data protection authorities, uh, and each country has at least one of those. Uh, so ours here is the ICO. Um, the, the advice given both by the uh, European Data Protection Board and, and the ICO is essentially to risk assess, to identify what, what real risk there is to the data subjects uh, rights and, uh, and the data that's being transferred across. So to do a risk, risk assessment and, and what they're talking about is adding supplementary measures in order to create the, the adequate level of protection. Uh, however, what they haven't done as yet is identify what those supplementary measures are. Uh, I, I think at, at the moment, most data protection authorities are fair. They were, stood, they were not expecting this, so there, there was no real preparation for it. Uh, and certainly most data, uh, data protection authorities are not likely to come down very hard on you um, because, you know, the, 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 they, they have an allowance in sort of there is in theory, but not 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 written an allowance for companies to be able to adapt. But uh, the reality at the moment is that any transfer of data to the US is probably invalid and illegal. So and when we're talking about any transfer, um, does that cover any kind of data in any shape or form out of interest? Well, it's, it needs to be personal data. So yeah. it, or personal data is all that's relevant. So in terms of, of data that can identify an individual. And can you just, because this is something that I know there's been a lot of debate about, um, and uh, I think, I like to think we've all, you know, talked a lot about GDPR, but can you just define what it means by data? So if in a finance team or a, a business, what kind of data, if you had a, a somebody's business email, would that class as personal data? Yeah, anything that identifies you. So, so ironically, a name on its own, so Hannah Monroe doesn't identify you because there's probably more than one Hannah Monroe in, in the world. Um, however, as soon as you say Hannah Monroe at uh, and where you work, that almost certainly identifies you uh, and right. couldn't be re with reference to anybody else. So uh, it, any, any piece of data that identifies an individual is considered personal data. So yes, business email addresses do. Um, the, the, the areas where that wouldn't be relevant would be where it's a, a mail at or a home at and, and that sort of thing are obviously with it, with a, within a business contact is unlikely to identify you. Um, but uh, uh, you've also got to take into consideration the possibility of sole traders as well, where there's only one person at the end of that email address. But essentially business and email addresses should be considered personal data. And in terms of the the piece of so this, and just to clarify my understanding on this, is that this is only for data that is stored outside of EU data centres, isn't it? So if it sits on a server within the EU block, then it's then it's classed as it, it, well, you wouldn't have an issue. Yeah, if it's just the data that's being <clears> emailed across, so spreadsheet that might be sent to a colleague in the US, for instance, well, would that be a breach? Uh, yeah, it could be, uh, 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 and it's also worth considering that if you're using a US company, um, it, there's sort of a grey area at the moment as to whether data stored by a US company in or on EU servers, for instance, would still be 
uh, applicable with regard to the uh, surveillance of that particular oh. company. So <clears throat> the, 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 you know, the, the actual remedies for this are, are firstly, does uh, FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that does the company that's processing the data, are they covered by FISA? And, and as I understand it, although I'm absolutely not an expert on US surveillance law, um, it doesn't necessarily cover every single company. Secondly, can you can you get away with not transferring it to that third party? So is the transfer necessary? Um, can you shut down the transfer without affecting business? Is there an alternative company you could use? Um, and, and finally, could you obtain assurance that the data is out of reach of the US surveillance, uh, US government from that third party? And, and it's your responsibility to ensure that any assurance you're given are valid. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so that's so this is really interesting, is it? Because if you think um, a lot of people and big groups of companies might share servers, so they might have their finance system on the US server, for instance or be sharing a, you know, the US database for whatever reason. So technically, if they are storing an individual contacts emails where they are a UK based company, and they are using say the head office that's in the US using their servers to store their financial systems data, that technically would be a breach. Correct. Unless it's, yeah, unless it's interesting. So I'm, I'm going to be honest to say that's not something that I think a lot of people are aware of. And how recently did this development happen? So uh, the the, uh, the actual uh, case was, was in July. Um, and uh, in the period since that, there's been obviously a lot of opinion pieces and um, uh, advice and guidance offered by the likes of the EDPV, the ICO, and um, various different data protection authorities across Europe. Um, so the, 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 there, are, there are potentially other solutions so if, for instance, the data was encrypted on, on the US servers and, uh, and the key to that, in, to, to that encryption was held in the EU by the, 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 the EU company or the UK company, for instance, um, then that may be a supplementary measure that's considered acceptable. Um, and depending on the data, it, it may be possible to anonymize it or, or to use other techniques. And pseudonymization is is one which is recommended from within the uh, from within the privacy sector. The principle of pseudonymization is where, let's say, you had a spreadsheet with your names down column one or column A, and the variety of other information across the spreadsheet. If you remove the name and replaced it with a number. Mm -hmm. and then put that name and that number in a different spreadsheet and you then held those in two separate places with different level with different uh, uh, passwords etc and um, and obviously very secure securely then in theory again you are it's a it's a, it's a type of encryption if you like yeah. uh, to, that will avoid which would mean that the information was therefore uh, anonymized or effectively anonymized Fantastic. So, yeah, there's a, there's obviously a lot into this. So I think um, <laughs> for the, uh, we'll we'll go at the end. We'll go through and we'll make sure that we put a link to your website and your contact information and your LinkedIn profile in in the show notes because I can imagine this being, especially with the fact that it's only July, it being a big 
a, a big challenge for a lot of companies, especially where they've got an international element to what they do. Um, it's going to yeah huge so so uh, this will obviously a big one for your industry at the moment and it's going to have a big impact on a lot of businesses in various different sectors um and any other recent developments that are are, are giving you uh, some uh, some interesting conversations yeah so again uh, speaking with uh, with colleagues from the industries i i confess i haven't had a client that's 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 uh, that's had to uh, had problems with this but uh, a company by the name of blackboard um had a serious breach uh the breach happened in february but they didn't discover it till may which is a concern in itself um and then the users uh, or, or the, uh, the their clients were only notified in july um and the, there's a lot of problems with that so so the the obvious apparent failures and and obviously we're not party to the specific details but the apparent failures would suggest that uh, any breach you, you shouldn't you should um inform the uh, 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 local uh, the data protection authority within 72 hours so clearly that didn't happen um whether the data was encrypted or, or encrypted to a high enough degree uh, it would be a question that, that would need to be asked um it, it seems strange that they didn't have some form of uh, monitoring on their network that would have identified this. Um, there are systems called intrusion detection systems, which are designed to, to, to do just this. And so a company of Blackboard size would, would be something you'd expect to, to have a budget that would include that sort of thing. Um, it didn't really end there, unfortunately, because um, what actually happened was that the, the criminals uh, that hacked in stole the uh, stole a, a, a large subset of data, um, and uh, and then went and essentially asked for a ransom from from Blackboard. Now there are various opinions on whether criminals should be paid in this instance. Um, however, they did pay them. Um, the, the 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 consequences of paying them. Is that they are they demonstrate that they've got a willingness to pay, so they're, they're going to be more attractive to criminals uh, than, than potentially other companies. Uh, it may encourage other 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 attacks of a similar nature, um, and, and probably most importantly, it funds the particular criminals to launch attacks on on the next people. So uh, it, there's definitely a question uh, attached to whether or not they should be paid or not. Um, they justified paying them on the basis that saying that they believed that data stolen had been deleted um, and apparently used quite an interesting um, justification for this on the basis that they said that uh, the criminals have a reputation to consider. (laughs) 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 Yeah, one of criminality, perhaps. (laughs) Well, exactly. Um, So that that was definitely an an interesting side to this. But, um, you know, the, the... as I understand it, the the the, the victims in this are, are mostly non-profits. Um, so it, it, you know, in the UK, that includes the National Trust, uh, many tens of universities, uh, as I say, non-profits such as Sue Ryder, um, as well. There was uh, there was over 125 companies affected. Some of which are obviously U, US-based, including uh, Boy Scouts America. So it's had a very serious implication and and obviously where you're talking about um 
you know, a number of those organisations, you're talking about children's data as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a definite concern. And there was a similar event a few years, a couple of years ago, uh, a company called Chegg who, who uh, had their data stolen. Um, and uh, some of that data is now appearing on the dark web. So uh, the fact that there's nothing, none of the blackboard data has yet appeared on the dark web, it's a question of let's wait and see because at the end of the day if you're a criminal and you've got data which is worth an awful lot of money then you're probably going to be quite happy to uh, to to cash in on it more than once and so i guess that that comes down a lot doesn't it to the security of the organization if you are going for cloud solutions making sure you ask the right questions so what um what questions should you be asking of a, a you know a solution provider if they're going to be controlled obviously hosting your solution around this to try and stop this from happening so, so the first thing to consider really is that specifically with cloud and i should i should um say right up front is that i'm i'm not i wouldn't class myself as a data security expert in terms of the the it element of it if what we're taught is very much to um, to, to utilize the expertise of IT data security uh, experts in terms of they're going to be the most uh, familiar with, with best practice and, and most recent sort of techniques that have been brought in. However, uh, as I'm aware that, that with, with most cloud providers, there's nothing to stop you putting your own encryption software uh, into, into the environment. Um, so, so that would be one thing that I would say with regard to that. Um, but uh, in, in respect of, uh, of when you're looking at suppliers, uh, ideally you should really have an outsourcing policy and, and, and uh, element of due diligence. Um, certainly at the moment I'd be inclined to, to probably look, try and find UK based cloud service providers of which there are plenty. Um, uh, for, for the obvious reasons around what we talked about before with Schrems 2. Um, and, and when certainly when you're dealing with UK companies, then ISO 27001 uh, it, it would be a key consideration. Uh, and obviously, understanding what commitment they've made to GDPR. So, you know, the first step is, is have a look on the website. And, and if the website ha either doesn't have a privacy notice or the privacy notice is is short uh, or looks like it's been copied and paste, pasted, then that, that would be red flags. Uh, right up uh, if you did get through that stage then then you're really looking at getting an understanding as i say of exactly what commitment they've got to to gdpr and uh, and within gdpr where you utilize a third party or a processor as, as they're known um you have the right to audit them um and if your data is is uh, of a sufficient uh, sensitivity then that that's certainly a, a route that I'd consider going down. Yeah, great. You know, all great questions, and I think um, certainly the the Blackwell story will um, prompt a few more questions. I think when people are talking about cloud and you know publicly available cloud, so interesting stuff. Month end close is one of the most time consuming and stressful processes for financial teams. 74% of mid-sized organisations take over a week and between two and five staff members to complete their close. 
Join us, the ITIS team, for our on-demand webinar where we look at key findings from a close-the-book survey conducted with 762 participants across a range of industries and platforms. Learn how Brian Goldrick from Vera Whole Health shortened his close by 60%, increased team efficiencies by 25%, and 10 best practices that you can take to reduce your close. Visit www.itissolutions.co.uk and go to our events page or click on the link in the show notes to sign up now. So um, we talked a lot about sort of um, data, managing data across borders. Um, have you got any sort of thoughts or recommendations for those that have remote workers in foreign countries, for those that are employed um, by the company and perhaps are in a different location outside of the EU, probably in this case? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of of sort of remote workers, if you think about the remote worker principle, it actually is is very similar to to the fact that a number of people are now working from home, and it's it's largely around the the uh, area of security and such like. So, um, whether they're at home or in the other side of the world, uh, you want to make sure that the transfer of data is secure. Uh, whether that be via a VPN or via uh, utilising a telecom solution such as MPLS, which is a private network, um, which, which would certainly be be useful. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, there are additional security options as well, such as DNS filtering. Um, it, where possible, you want to minimise local storage. So if you're able to have uh, the, the access is, is essentially done uh, utilizing a, a central database so the, the data never lives on the on the device of the remote worker. Uh, obviously encryption and pseudonymization where possible, access control, um, utilizing two-factor authentication. Um, a remote access policy obviously is crucial. Um, there are still companies who are accepting their staff use their own devices. Um, for, for access to company data, it, it's not it, it's not it's not great. But if if you if 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 the uh, financial reasons for that or, or whatever, then then fair enough. But the company has to have a, a bring your own device policy as well, in order to to cover those areas um, to make sure you, you know there's there's a lot obviously of uh, of concern around somebody doing work at home. Uh, on a PC that their wife then uses to do her shopping on and the daughter then uses to go off and look at Disney and such like and their teenage son does goodness only knows what on um, and there's obviously massive concerns around that so uh, that you know that there are uh, technical solutions which enable uh, companies to to control the the areas of the device that are used for for business um, but but regardless uh, uh, it, but certainly in terms of device management, you need to be encrypting the uh, encrypting the hard drive, making sure that patching is 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 automatically done, malware, et cetera, uh, protections. Um, and I, guess, I guess it's becoming more prevalent and more problematic during uh, lockdown, you know, and you never know, we might have another one on the way, um, but where they are um, sending documents here, there and everywhere, because it's not just digital data is it so if you've got a document with an email address on um would that be counted under personal data out of interest yeah so so you know obviously 
in an office you'd you'd want to have a, a clear desk policy um and obviously that's it's incredibly difficult to monitor <laughs> uh for, for, for home workers and such like um I, I you know and i do hear of certain companies who are utilizing cameras to keep an eye on their staff and, and that in, in, inherently has problems as well because if you're not telling employees that you're doing that by way of an employee privacy notice then um you couldn't use that footage for anything even if you you saw them doing a, something that was was you know against the principles of the business so um <clears throat> there are lots of, of potential uh, hurdles and, and problems that home workers caused uh, and also you've got to consider that remote workers are more at risk of sort of spear phishing attacks and that sort of thing so what's spear phishing that's that's a, that's an interesting name for an attack Okay, so phishing is is the principle where you get an email saying please click here, and and you, and the, the the hacker is hoping you're going to click through, and either it goes to your bank a page purporting to be your homepage or your sign-in page of your your bank and such like. Spear phishing is when it's targeted at an individual, um, and certainly uh, the, the, the the typical examples would be where. Uh, an attack comes in because uh, somebody is working, it's an email from the MD or the FD, and, and these are very well known, uh, saying, please pay this person so-and-so, and here's their bank details, and please do it immediately, and uh, I'm, I'm, I sort of works on the principle of fear, <laughs> that yeah. the, M, the MD is insisting that this payment is made in the next 10 minutes, uh, so somebody doesn't have the chance to query it. Uh, obviously, if... Um, if somebody's working from home as opposed to an office, it's much more difficult to query those sort of things because uh, quite often staff probably don't want to bother their MDs and FDs and, and CFOs, etc. So um, there are more, certainly there's a lot more in terms of cyber attacks that, that are happening now. And any, any home worker is going to be, uh, it potentially has an issue with regard to you know how well their Wi-Fi is locked down, and and uh, and the router that they're using, whether they've changed the, um, uh, the the standard default password on it, which which can make which can make hacking incredibly easy if if somebody knows what they're doing. Yeah, and you you forget sometimes, don't you, about the basics, and uh, and I think you know as you know as the for the COVID piece continues, because I think we're stuck with it for a while now. Um, that's going to become more and more important because it's going to be it's going to be a continued working from home, and yeah. those uh, those criminals are going to take advantage of it in terms uh, of yeah. Uh, absolutely, and, and and the other thing to think about with COVID is also that you should have, I mean hopefully the companies will have will have utilised a um, a business continuity policy uh, in, in the event that staff can't get into the office. Um, but those those documents, those policies should also be updated for the principles of local lockdowns and and, and the principle that, that also even if we do have a return to the office at some stage, it's not impossible to have an outbreak within an office. Um, uh, and, and business continuity policies and plans should be updated to to that effect as well. Yeah, I think we're all going to have a COVID section in our business continuity plans uh, for the future. Um, yeah, so it, it does, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting, actually? And that's a whole different podcast, the actual the <laughs> concept of business continuity. I think it's really brought to life. I was on a I was on a call this morning 
and we were we were joking about you know what what happens if somebody gets hit by a bus and this happens and actually when you think about it we've got probably more likelihood of catching covid than we have of being hit by a bus at the moment uh, so it's, it's uh, maybe that should be the new phrase what if somebody goes down with covid so yeah. <laughs> depressing thought hey <laughs> Yeah, no, well, absolutely. The, the other thing to consider, by the way, with regard to remote workers, and this is specifically around remote workers uh, in foreign countries and, and far seas and such like, is that you're processing uh, employee data. Um, so you need to make sure that uh, all the relevant changes are made in terms of the employee privacy notice uh, and make sure that you're able to um, uh, to to, to uh, respect the rights of uh, of the data subjects who are in this case the employees uh, think about the cross-border transfers we obviously talked about that with standard con contract clauses and such like uh, and then you've obviously got issues so gdpr provides a legal basis um for processing data which is relevant to an employment context uh, but obviously with with all these uh, individuals they'll be in in countries with their own employment law as well so uh, you'll need to to make sure that those things are covered uh, and that those employees are also familiar with it's the same principle around outsourcing that we talked about before with cloud suppliers um, make sure that they're trained so they understand the principles of the uh, of what to do in a breach um, uh, <clears throat> and essentially to to you know respect GDPR and understand it in that way but it really depends on whether they've come from a an EU base or, or they've been employed from abroad. And it's, it is interesting to be fair and you can see how much um, you know how much is involved in maintaining data compliance from a company just by listening to this conversation and having this talk with you. So um, and traditionally in a lot of cases the finance director is the one that's taking responsibility for a lot of this. So whose role in your experience do you think it should be within the organisation? I mean, isn't, uh, as is the case with 99% with of, of questions about data protection, the, the answer is it depends. Um, but <laughs> but the, uh, the the thing to, to remember, I think, so the, the first thing is, is does the company actually need to appoint a data protection officer? And not every company does. So public authorities do. Uh, any company whose core activities consist of processing, opera processing operations, um, which require regular and systematic, systematic monitoring of data subjects on a large scale. And, and a lot of these are undefined, so to speak, but you know, examples of, of, the, of, the, um, of the large scale could be a, a telecom, telecommunications company. Um, and, and in fact, some of, these, some of the types of companies are defined by, uh, so the, the, what is now the European Data Protection Board used to be called the Article 29 Working Committee. Um, and they specified certain types of companies that do require uh, DPOs, uh, such as telecom, telecommunications, far, uh, pharmacies. Uh, it, it obviously, it's relevant to the type of data uh, that you're processing. Um, and the third type is, um, is processing a large scale of, of special category data. Um, and that's typically around uh, the, the discriminatory um, types of data so political uh, racial religious philosophical um, but also includes genetic and biometric data and health data which is which is crucial because most hr um, applications will will include 
health data. So you've also got to make sure that you've got the legal basis right and the and more and, and equally as importantly the uh, make sure the security uh, of that data is is prioritized brilliant and I, i'm going to be very honest to say i've stuart i've learned a huge amount about data compliance i did not expect to to learn so thank you so much for joining us today and do you have any sort of top tips for any anyone working, you know, finance directors, CFOs around data compliance, you'd like to share. Uh, the, the main thing for me is is that with with all of my clients, uh, I, I'm always uh, shocked at how open their social media accounts are, uh, and also of their families. Um, social media is is a, is a, a, a an area that that criminals will look to utilise as much as possible. So, if you or your your spouse or your children have, have sort of geotagged or mentioned that you've been to a restaurant or the dog's in the vet and such like, that sort of information is 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 music to the ears of criminals because this is where spear phishing comes in. If you say that you've been to, you know, if they can go onto your open Facebook account, for instance, and see that you've been for a meal at a particular restaurant, um, then it's very easy for them to spoof an email to make it look like it's come from the, the restaurant itself. Uh, and say thanks for coming last Tuesday. I hope you enjoyed the meal. Please click this link for a free bottle of wine next time you come. And, and it's and it's actually quite difficult to spot unless you know what you're looking for. Um, so closing, just 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 put all the the relevant privacy features onto your social media so that they're all locked down uh, and people you don't want to have access to it anyway can't see it. That's brilliant. And th so thank you so much, Stuart. So for if somebody wants to get hold of you, they'd like some advice on data compliance or any of the topics that we covered in today's podcast, what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, certainly via the uh, uh, the website, which is the compliance consultancy uh, dot com uh, at Stuart Davenport on LinkedIn. Uh, they're probably the easiest to obviously there's an email address and contact details on my website. Fabulous. And we'll, for those that are listening that are interested, we'll also pop the, those links into the show notes as well. So people could just click and have a look. Um, so thank you so much, Stuart. You have been, it's, it's been really informative and you've been fantastic. So thank you for joining us. And uh, hopefully you. you'll be back to talk to some more data compliance soon. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Stuart. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. I actually have a favour to ask. Reviews and shares are incredibly important to the success of any podcast. If you could spare a minute to share this episode on your social network or leave us a comment to tell us what you liked, I would really appreciate it. Feel free to tell me what topics interest you most. I would really love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to check out our late, latest CFO 4.0 webinar on budgeting and planning in a volatile environment. Click the link in the show notes or visit www.itassolutions.co.uk and click on our events page for more info and great content. And if you want to reach out at any point, tell us what you liked, tell us what we can do better, then feel free. Just email us at cfopodcast.itassolutions.co.uk. Thank you and speak soon.